Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Usually when I do a recording such as this, it's more of a formal affair in that the machine gets switched on and away we go. Not so with tournament casting legend Peter Bagnall, who when the recorder was switched on, started chatting before getting into the interview proper. Having a bit of pre-recording banter isn't that unusual, though normally I would edit it out. But not so this time, as it was too good to bin. So apologies if some topics get covered twice by way of our chit-chat, then again later, as we wade through the prepared questions in the normal manner. I was down on the beach at Russell and a chap had an Atlantic 484 and a 7000 yes. and uh, he was saying he could still cast reasonable distances. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not a caster, one of the things I've found hard to get my head round, and one or two people have clarified it a little bit, was when Les Moncrief was casting on mm-hmm. the beach at Dungeness and yeah. doing this sort of making the link between casting and angling, which got people yeah, enthused yeah. about yeah. it. What kind of distances can you cast with bait on? It's, I mean, people go on about, oh, they can do 250 and one thing, you know, with the lead on the end. What can yeah. you do with bait on? What is realistic? It, it obviously depends on how you, you've got the bait mounted. Whether you, you know, this one of the things that uh, I'm not sure whether it wasn't John Holden that um, uh, invented the one where you, you hook the, the hook over a little. Oh, the bait clip? Yeah, yeah, and it's when it hits the water, it comes off it, doesn't it? You know. Yeah, I mean, from my limited knowledge of it, there was a there was a clip down one and a clip up one, and I don't know what the difference would be, whichever way it went, except that they used to say that baits used to explode, and I presume that's when it was clipped up because the air would get on the bait and maybe I don't right. know. Explode. I never used them, so I don't know. I mean, oh, I, right. I, I only used right. uh, flowing traces, you know, flying traces and yeah. that sort of thing. But it's, I did do for sea angler a table of casting with and without all bait. right right okay uh, in fact i got a letter back from the editor saying that it was one of the best articles he'd ever read and he was a, a sea angler and he said that uh, you know would that be mel russ or, or was no, it still peter no. collins at that stage no it was after Co- no it was but i think no wait a minute was it collins uh, no it wasn't peter collins well it must have been mel russ he took over from him it doesn't matter really, it was just a, just a thought. I've got it, I've still got the letter. And was it like yeah. a direct comparison between whatever lead it was, casting with just the lead and then casting with the bait on, just to give you the comparison? No, it was, it was casting with three boom paternosters, with uh, right. a series of different baited things, you know. Yeah. The one with just a, a single bait on a short snood is very little different to casting without a, a depending on the size of the bait you've got on, of course. Yeah. But if you can do 180 without anything on, you do 170 with a bait on. Was that clipped down? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So yeah. it was possible not, to get some distance. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would have think with the gear that Les Moncrief was using, he would be lucky if he was doing, because I know how far he could cast, and, uh, and he would be lucky if he was doing with bait on 125, 130 yards. Right, right, because I remember one or two people who've seen him casting at demos but didn't actually measure it, but uh, casting with baits on and said that if he could do 150, it would be lucky. So that ties in, doesn't yeah, it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, doing, <laughs> doing it on a field without being measured is, is a, yeah, it's a bit of a no-no, really, isn't it, you mm. know? 
Yeah. That's one thing about all the demos I did, if they wanted to measure it, I, I let them measure it, you know. Yeah, I never actually met Moncrief. It was one of the, strangely enough, even though I wasn't a shore fisherman, I lived inland, I was a coast fisherman when I first started when I was a kid at school. Yeah. I started buying uh, angling magazine and creel, and I just remember seeing Moncrief with these big piles of cod and getting yes. confused and thinking, yes. this is what I would like to do one day. <laughs> yeah. I never did it. No, no, but, no. Uh, he was a man that sparked a lot of it off. It is, yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, give him his due, he was. But uh, everybody doubted that the distances that he was talking about were uh, a little bit, uh, much less, uh, can't think of the word now. <laughs> debatable. Yeah, debatable, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only time I ever saw him cast was at the UKSF Championships, the first one they held. Yeah. Because uh, I think he was president of the of the UKSF, and uh, I actually felt sorry for him because he had that many people around him to watch him cast, and it was the first cast he'd done in a tournament, as far as I know, and it was a two ounce level line event, multiplayer, and he cast with the check on, <laughs> so he cast with I think thirty nine yards or something like that, you know. <laughs> And it really was embarrassing for him, and, and and it was only because the people round about him were asking him questions and what have you, not letting him get on with the, yeah. the casting, yeah. you know. But you've remembered it all these years on, and everybody else will have remembered well, it Well, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. It's just a shame. I could never really fathom him out, because I didn't speak to him that often. I, I, I met him, you know, as I say, up at uh, the British Championships in 67, I think it was. But he was always an anti-stiff-butted rod man and, and, you know, obviously he was promoting the, the spring eel and, and the, yeah. the hardy one that followed it, you know. Was that the reverse taper butt? Yes, yeah. So what would that do? How did it work? Well, it just worked like a longbow. It just, it just the whole lot bent, you right. know. But, of course, when, you look, when you've got the handle bending, you're not getting the power transferred up the rod to the tip. Because you've got the tip bending, the handle's bending the same as the tip, you know. Yeah. So the, really the power only comes from the top hand and it's not transferring the power in the in the butt because it's just bending. I remember John Holding giving me tips when I was asking about casting because I was saying about casting. He said, oh, I'll advise you what to do. And he always said, always remember, push with your right hand and push, push with, with your, your left hand. hand. That's right, so, yeah, and yeah. And I suppose with, with this reverse taper rod, what, what, what would do that anything. No, no, no. You didn't matter what you did with your left hand because you weren't doing anything. Yeah, you were no the bit at the bottom, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, you pull your left hand into your stomach and your right hand goes pushing away with the rod. Now, one other thing that I'd like to ask you because, and I'm not absolutely sure my facts here, but when I was talking to John, I'm sure, well, maybe maybe sure is a strong word. I seem to recollect that he'd said that he thought he cast the first 200 yard cast in Britain, but. You. Yeah, yeah. It, it, as far as I know, he cast the first 200 yards in a competition. Right, right. I think so. so. It was after I'd finished. But you cast a 200 yards. I did a 200 yards in a demonstration. That's the difference, yeah, sorry. That right. was the difference. Yeah, yeah. clarification. Yeah. Yes, I think he did. But as I say, it was after I'd finished tournament casting, you know. And what he also said, I don't know what, what your uh, angling history is like, but he was saying that a lot of people in Britain think that we're the world leaders and we invented this, that and the other. And he was going on about these chaps in California, Primo, 
Levenay's, yeah, Levenay, yeah. he's saying that he was casting 230 odd in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Primo Levenay's that I was reading about. I actually mentioned him in one of my articles. I think it's him that I've got a description of the casting style that he used. And I've actually tried it and it's so complicated. You go through so many phases that if you get one wrong, the, the, the cast goes out to pot, you know. Whereas um, the layback of Moncrief and the, the zoom casting that I used to do has got very little movement in it, really. It's, it's just continuous. Once you've set yourself in position, then it, it's just a continuous single stroke, you know. And did that evolve into the, the pendulum as we know it? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. The pendulum is the one I always used when I was fishing. It was never called a pendulum cast, but no. uh, um, when I described uh, the casting styles to use with the 484, people that had been using overhead casting and what have you just couldn't do the pendulum cast right off. So I did a series of three, the basic one and the intermediate one, and, and then the, uh, I forget what we call it now, um, but in that I described the uh, lead moving as a pendulum in the casting style and that's where it came about being called a pendulum cast. Now I was on a forum looking for information a while ago and somebody had said that Dennis Darkin invented the pendulum cast. Um, I think everybody's laying claim to this one. Well they can do what they like because Dennis Darkin wasn't casting when I was casting no. so <laughs> if he wants to claim it, he can claim it. I'm yeah. not claiming it. All I'm saying is that I used it, you know, I made yeah. the lead go like a pendulum in the casting style, you know. And nobody was doing it before? No, no. So, in effect... Well, I'm saying nobody was doing it before. I mean, people might have been doing it before. I don't yeah. see people all over the country, yeah, how they cast, you know. This was my... My own preference, that was all, you know. But I, I mean, didn't pinch it off anybody, as far as I know. Exactly, so in a roundabout way, the answer to that one is kind of yes. <laughs> you did. <laughs> you well, you did ask. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, well, I, I used it and I put it into writing, let's put it that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I hadn't seen anybody else casting that way before. So you were asking me about how I started and my yeah, my yeah, the various kinds of solid glass rods was the first one yeah. you saw at the shop, and then you got into all the so yeah. yeah. Well, I I, uh, I started uh, when I was eight years old. My dad had uh, he done a lot of sea fishing earlier on in his life, and he still had his old boat rod and, and reel, and uh, he took me on the jetty one day, and we we. I mean, I cast, talking about casting then, I think if I could cast 10 yards, that's as far as it was going, you know. But it was going into the sea, and that was all that mattered. He'd had some great success. He was working on, a, on the, one of the more controllers for a few years, and he used to use the dinghy that they brought the, the fish ashore with. That little tender thing. And it was with the sail. He used to take it out and sail around the battery, battery skier in that area, you know, and uh, trolling... A piece of red rubber sand deal for bass, and and he did quite successful. In fact, the biggest one he was telling me it was over nine pound in weight, so that's a big bass to me, you know. Yeah, it is. And this old wooden centre pin with hemp line, of course, was. <laughs> I bet people wouldn't even know what hemp line is nowadays. I don't think really. I used to make the uh, weights using a, a little matchbox and pouring lead into that, which obviously was dangerous, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it made the weights with a bit of wire stuck in the end, you know. 
and uh, Morecambe of course the sand there's plenty of bait on the sands lugworm so I used to go and dig in on there and I remember uh, the first fish that I caught was a little flounder uh, it was huge to me but it was about five inches long and I took it home and Mother said, well, don't bring it. She said, I'll cook it for you, but don't bring any home as small as this again. There's <laughs> you know, virtually no meat on it. <laughs> yeah. When I got a bit older, I was about 13, I was working in Wilf Taylor's. It was a fishing tackle shop on the first floor. On the ground floor, it was a photography shop. And uh, I worked in the, in the fishing tackle place, just serving customers on a Saturday and a Sunday. He was open on Sunday mornings, and uh, as I say, I was there when this Milborough order came in, and amongst it was uh, two of the new so-called unbreakable fiberglass, solid fiberglass uh, rods, sea rods. Uh, I think that just before that, I think the first ones that came out were spinning rods, but uh, these were the first sea rods. They were two entirely different. The, the nine foot one was very heavy, and you know, the, the butt section had been ground off to a taper. But the, the eight footer, it was only the tip section that was tapered, and the butt section was parallel. I suppose, in essence, it was the first <laughs> the first of the rods that Moncrief. Yeah, the spring heel. Because <laughs> it was that action, you know. Uh, so. But I enjoyed using it uh, once you got used to it. And of course it was something new, so I suppose that made a difference. And I think that uh, the fact that I could actually cast further with that than I was than with the rod that I was using, which was a piece of bamboo cane then, I think. I could cast further with it, and, and I, I started doing very well off the beach at uh, Half Moon Bay and, and off the, the skier at the battery and Grosvenor skier. Yeah, so I enjoyed using that. As I say, I've still got it, and it was quite some time before I actually moved on to uh, longer rods, you know. You asked me about meeting Les Moncrief. I did, yeah. Um, it was 1967 at the British Casting Association Championships at um, World's End in 1967. 1966 was the first year that I cast in the competition, uh, but in 1967 he brought uh, his he brought Gordon Moody with him, who was a youngish chap, very good caster, and they were, they were trying to promote the new hardy spring eel type rod, and uh, he was going to show us all how to cast. Uh, I'd used his, this, one of his spring eel rods made by Martin James, before the 1966 competitions and did very well with it. I thought at the time it was the best rod on the market and I found it, it quite easy to use being a soft action, similar to the fiberglass rod that I had. Morecambe Bay, which is my home fishing ground, is one large estuary really, where five rivers empty into the sea. So consequently, at low tide, it's really one large sandbank with channels running through it and when I fished it regularly it had a very good head of dabs, place, flounders and eels throughout the year and in summer there were bass as a bonus while in winter saw an influx of whiting and codling. 
I remember a friend and I taking a catch of over a hundred mixed flatfish in a three-hour evening session from the dinghy and really they were within casting distance from the beach. Then the government in their wisdom, against all local advice, allowed the Dutch trawlers to fish the Irish Sea with the type of net that goes 18 inches under the sand and scoops everything up. In a few seasons catches of flatfish had almost disappeared. The irony is there was a size limit on all species but that was ignored and the catch was only to go for fish meal fertiliser for the Dutch farmers. Well, hopefully we're away from all that long. Yeah, it has recovered a bit now but it's taken decades and it's still nowhere near back to what it was. By this stage you progress from part-time weekend work in the shop to actually owning it. Quite a jump. Also, I would imagine, an excellent opportunity to appraise a very wide range of tackle on the market at the time. <laughs> yeah, well, when I left school, uh, I became an apprentice joiner at local builders and did a five-year course. I think they do three months now. I worked in the building trade until 1964, when the proprietor of our newest tackle shop suddenly passed away and died of a heart attack. Uh, a mutual friend asked if I was interested in buying the business and after taking advice I said yes but only for the cost of the stock. The shop was evidently on the rocks so it wouldn't have lasted more than about three months anyway. Uh, so it was a gamble and I think it was only achievable by the fact that I lived with my parents and they took a minimum weekly amount from me for food etc. It was only a small lock-up shop behind the Alhambra Theatre in the west end of Morecambe and only about 16 feet by 12 feet. But it had a cellar which I used as a workshop. I purchased an old six-foot lathe bed with a hollow chuck which could be hand-driven for rod whipping and motor-driven for turning handles, etc. And I used my handicraft skills to make rods and undertook rod and reel repairs, giving a quick return round to keep my customers fishing. I gradually built up the trade, which was uh, freshwater match fishing orientated when I started and built it into an all-round fishing trade. Uh, during my building trade time I had gone through a phase of freshwater coarse fishing and trout, sea trout, fly fishing and later I took up salmon fishing on the River Loon. My first salmon weighed 20 and a half pounds and uh, it was many years before I caught a bigger one. I've caught a few bigger ones since, but uh, <laughs> it took me a long time to get one up bigger than that. Was that on the loon? That was on the loon, but the others were on uh, on the Eden, actually. Right. Yeah. Tackle at the time I had the shop was going through big changes. Uh, in fact, when I took the, the shop on, the best sea rod that became available that Christmas was a modern arms fishing tackle seeking. 10 foot beach caster, steel centred, double split cane, a real beauty of a rod and a good seller. Things were moving on and hollow fibreglass was making its mark and like all things there were good and bad models and I only tried to stock the former although the price was usually a bit dearer. And canal rods were moving away from Spanish reed with split cane and solid glass tops to the new hollow glass ones but the bigger diameters really to keep the weight down and used to get the stiff actions were the biggest obstacle but progress was apparent all along the line. Even monofilament lines were improving, they were getting stronger for less diameter which helped. 
reels were also improved and we saw the first of the decent close face reels from Abu and they did work well with the new types of drag systems. In fact Abu as a promotion gave each shop that put an order in for three of the original 505s they gave them a, a reel to lend out to the customers engraved with the shop's name on the on the plate still got mine <laughs> <laughs> and the cardinal reels they were they were a real boon and smooth to fish with and the top range 54s 55s and 57 models were unbeatable I don't think really there's, there's been anything better since. I've got a Cardinal 55 at home, one of the original ones. Yeah, the black ones. No, it's, it's Is uh, it a green one. I think it's a blue one. A blue one. Ah, I think right. so. No, it's, it's the later model of that. The later model. They brought the green ones out first. The blue ones were actually a cheaper version of the green ones, and then they brought out the black ones with the gold uh, writing on, them, and uh, they were the best ever. No, I didn't buy mine, it was a gift off somebody that was yeah, clearing yeah. something out. Right. I mean, the quality of the present-day stuff, it makes it uh, a pleasure to use and cast and fish with, but the lack of fish stock doesn't help mm. and anglers to enjoy it like they used to do. So one day you receive a leaflet in the shop regarding the British Surf Casting Championships to be held at Wall's End and decide to give it a go. That's right. Well, I'd never even heard of tournament casting in those days <laughs> uh, and this leaflet came through and uh, I had a talk to members of our, uh, the Angling Society that I was a member of, Morecambe Sea Angling Society and I talked to them about the competition and asked if they fancied going to learn about the different styles used for competition casting and see if we could see anything that would help us with our own styles. It's quite a few wanted to go on a trip, so we arranged uh, the cars going in convoy. I got a list uh, of the winning distance at the 1965 championships, and we did some measuring of our own casts on the field and found that we could compete without disgracing ourselves, so we decided to enter two teams of three casters into the team event. Uh, one or two others, including myself, decided to try some of the individual events as well, so... When we arrived, we had about a dozen entrants for the competitions, <laughs> which wasn't bad because we were only going for a look. On the day, we rather excelled our expectations, with the A-team winning the event with a total distance of 1,003 yards. That's three times three casts. But I think there was at least one cast, which was a miscast, so there weren't actually nine casts. And the B-team, they came fourth. In the individual events, uh, I won the four-ounce level line event with a, a record cast of 156 plus yards. And also the six-ounce multiplier event with a record 160 yards. I was also a member of the winning team. My rod for the four-ounce and six-ounce events was my spring eel. And the reel was a Penn Surfmaster 100p. Sounds more like them learning from you rather than the other way around. I don't know, I was using an old technique, I was using the layback style. <laughs> As per uh, Yeah, well, read about them and try them and these things and it worked. It worked for me, you know, but uh, after the prize presentation, I had an approach from Dick Swift from Redcar. 
he was um, a real good all-round tournament caster, but he competed mainly in the freshwater events. But he did do the lighter sea events, and he really had a technical knowledge about styles and what have you. And he came with uh, Eric Horsfall Turner, who was the Scarborough Town Clerk. But he was also the secretary of the British Casting Association. Uh, they both congratulated me on winning at the first attempt, and then conversation got round to tackle and styles. They were obviously in agreement by the way that I cast, but not very complimentary about the rod I was using to do it. <laughs> we got into a deeper discussion, and they were firmly of the opinion that I, if I changed my rod to a more recognisable competition rod, that I would increase my distance greatly before getting used to the different feel. I think, although I used the Moncrief rod, that my casting style included the pendulum bit, well, I know it did, which wasn't part of uh, the Moncrease style. We we had quite an atter, and Dick talked to us uh, as a group about uh, South African style rods. And he described them and said the blanks were not available in the UK. So I asked if he had any contacts in uh, Africa who might be able to send a few over. So... I said that if he could get them to order five for me and my casters and eventually we got them. They were 12 feet, one piece hollow fibreglass with a much faster taper than anything we had here. And they were made by Sportex, the Sportex company. I think it's American, Sportex. A very famous company, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, still going, I think. Anyway, my choice after trying a blank a few times with rings taped on was to go the whole hog and make the butt part even more rigid. I cut about three feet off the butt end and fitted a brass furrow and then added four and a half feet length of aircraft quality duralium, duralumin, extending the outfit to 13 foot six. Added the rings to suit the loaded curve of the rod and used a horsepipe type clamp as a reel fitting. Lots of casters did the same after, but that was my four ounce and six ounce event rod for using at Wall's End in 1967 to say that I won the four main events breaking two records putting the six ounce up to 175 yards two feet and the four ounce level line event to 162 yards one foot nine says how effective it was and presumably that was where you developed your famous zoom casting style which would eventually lead to the pendulum cast um, the Zoom name came from Abu, they, they called it Zoom Casting. And it's a bit difficult to describe, there's, there's three distinct phases for anyone changing from a standard uh, or soft action rod up to a fast taper one to get to grips with. Firstly because of the right recoil of the modern rods they will find the sinker going in all directions unless they get the action under control, hence the Zoom standard cast. I find it difficult to explain, but here goes. I described it in an advertisement for the launch of the Abu Atlantic 484 surf casting rod in October 2008, so at least I can quote some of that. The basic stance is the same for all three styles of zoom casting, so I'll describe the standard cast from the beginning. The angler first places his feet shoulder width apart and toe in a line 
that's in the direction of the cast. The body should then be turned to the right until the shoulders are at right angles to the direction of the cast. When this position is reached, the whole of the body weight should be onto the right leg with the knee being slightly bent. This will lift the left heel off the ground and it's there for balance. With the right hand at the reel and the left hand holding the bottom of the book close to the inside of the right thigh, the rod tip should be pointing in the exact opposite direction to which the cast will be made. The sinker should hang approximately 30 inches below the rod tip. To take up the basic stance, turn the rod to the right and place the sinker on the ground at about 20 minutes to on a clock face, about 280 degrees from the direction of the cast. Draw the rod anti-clockwise until the tip feels the tension of the sinker uh, and the tip is resting on the ground. Without moving the tip, the start position is taken up by lifting the left hand until he reaches shoulder height. The right shoulder turns in under the butt and the rod is held across the palm of the right hand with the multiplier turned downwards. As a quick check, the shoulders are at the same angle to the ground as the rod is and the angler should be able to see the target under his left arm. The actual cast starts with the body turning and at the same time transferring the body weight to the left leg. As the body reaches the upright position, the right arm starts pushing through and the left hand pulls hard down towards the stomach, putting the full power into the rod before the release point is reached. And these actions should bring the rod round to a final angle of about 10 degrees right of vertical. I know it sounds complicated, but... Uh, if you think about it when you're doing it, it does turn out to be very simple. It's the kind of thing be better on a video, really, isn't it? A demo, but it's just... Yeah, yeah, things. it probably is, yeah. Now, for the intermediate zoom cast, you take up the same basic stance to the part where the sinker is placed on the ground and the rod is at the 20 minutes to position. But then you lift the rod until it is nearly vertical and the weight is hanging stationary from this is the start position of the cast. Moving fast enough the rod tip is taken down towards the 22 position by the right hand pushing the rod away from the body and downwards. At the same time the body starts to pivot, the right shoulder turning under the rod, the left hand is rising until the tip is about 9 inches off the ground and the angler is now in the start position of the standard cast but the rod is already flexed and the body and arm movements then follow through exactly as the standard cast but the extra early compression achieved will give longer distances. The advanced zoom cast, the big one, yeah, is the one I personally use for distance casting where shock leaders are allowed and in fishing. You take up the basic stance and go to the intermediate zoom start position. Using the left hand as a stationary pivot and the lead on a slightly longer, say 45 inch drop, is made to swing parallel in the direction to the direction of the cast and is gently swung back and forth pendulum fashion until it reaches a height on the backswing that is level with the tip ring. When the weight reaches this height, the right arm will then be fully bent and the action of the lead swinging up will compress the rod tip. 
the rod is then pushed down towards the 25-2 position and the cast follows through as for the zoom intermediate. So that's all the other people who lay claim to it put in the place. <laughs> well, if you want to say that, you're quite welcome. <laughs> you're not denying it? I'm not denying it, no, no, no. no. <coughs> anyway, next thing, Abu comes knocking at the door. Yes, yes, I was a little flattered about that and uh, pleasantly surprised. And uh, they were wanting the, an opinion on the new beachcaster that they were hoping to bring to the UK market. I agreed to have a look at it and put it through its paces and my very good friend Eric Moore, who later also became a British casting champion, said he would come with me to do the tests. The 10 foot two piece rod duly arrived and I was taken aback by it. I took the tip out of the bag first and my first thought was that they'd sent me a spinning rod by mistake. The very thinnest bit was about one-eighth of an inch diameter and it was a very fast taper down to the heavy chrome screw-lock ferrule. This is to cast an eight ounce weight. Then they must be joking. Out came the butt section and my first impression how heavy it felt for a slim rod blank. The taper had lessened. It had a nice full cork handle with another nice aluminium screw reel seat with a rubber push-on book cup. The finish was a brown lacquer and the large heavily chrome rings whipped on with a fine mottled thread and appeared to be over the top sidewise. I could not fault the finish but would it stand the test? Eric and I were convinced that the box it went back to Abu in would be a lot shorter than the one it came in. Uh, we had weights of 2 ounce, 4 ounce, 5, 6 and 8 ounces to do the first test and decided we would go to lowest to the highest if it got there. I cast first, not so hard, as it was entirely different to anything I'd ever handled before and was pleasantly surprised, as was Eric when he tried it. After a few casts with the 4 ounce weight we were beginning to get the hang of the action and started to put the power on, getting more and more taken with the rod. It was performing much better than we expected. The following day I was out on my own with the rod and after a while I started to lay into it with the biggest weight and I'm delighted to say that it laughed at all I gave it and came back for more. Having said that there were quite a few things that would not help it to sell. The main one to get over was the short length. I reported my results to Abu and said that although it had done everything we had asked of it, it would be difficult to sell for several reasons, but I didn't say what they were. I think knowing that, the, that I had a seaside fishing tackle shop must have had them thinking that uh, maybe I knew a little bit about what sold, and they came back asking me to redesign it, and if it was acceptable to them, would I demonstrate it around the country? So we came to an amicable agreement and uh, set about it. I tried to persuade them to use different rod rings but they were fairly adamant that they were part of the ABO concept at the time so I had to use them. On the plus side they were cradled so the line passing through them did not drag on the glass plank and they were also suited to the fixed spool reel. Phil you've seen the results of my work but probably did not know that it was the best selling rod for the next five years in the UK. For a time, some of the dealers were inundated with second-hand rods, which anglers wished to part exchange for the Abu Atlantic 484. 
there was nothing very wrong with it, but it was not for the UK market. Now I suspected it was a spin-off from the USA. It cast well after some practice, but it did not match everything that we had here, and I never cast further with it than I had done with the spring eel. Out of interest, what were the changes you suggested? The rings were not spaced correctly for the blanks curve. The reel fitting was not suitable and in the wrong place. The rod was not long enough. I changed it and then I had to go out and prove it was right. A group of independent witnesses attended the first trials of the rod and most were astonished at the results. The longest cast recorded was 195 yards and nothing had been seen like it before in the UK. Point proved, I think. The rest is history, as they say. The thing that most people didn't realise about the zoom rod was actually the construction of the blank. It was made from top quality fibreglass, but the the blank taper, where normal blanks had the same wall thickness from the base to the tip, with the zoom rod, the wall thickness at the bottom was nearly twice as thick as it was at the tip, so the inside taper also it was different to the outside taper right. and it transferred the casting power right up the rod to the tip nothing bent at the bottom end the power went all the way up was you aware of that at the time or did you design that? I wasn't there I wasn't aware of it at the time no no I found out actually afterwards that that was what they'd done which is what they were calling the zoom casting rods you know the zoom rods all I did was give them the actual curve with a particular weight hanging off the end of it and they designed the blank to so it would do that and that's how I used to design all the rods that I did for Abu because uh, I did a, a series of about 36 coarse fishing rods, fly fishing rods, spinning rods and sea rods. No, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, <laughs> well yeah, I didn't stop when I 484 finished. <laughs> And that's the story behind the iconic Atlantic 484. A rod way ahead of its time and only displaced when the laminating materials such as carbon began to be used, outcompeting anything fibreglass could achieve. Well, the operational life of a, a hollow fibreglass rod depends on many things. The quality of the actual fibres, the adhesive they use to bond them together, the care taken in the rolling of the tube and the operation of the ovens for drying the tube. Abbo rods were at the highest spec, uh, and up to now I've never heard of an Atlantic 484 breaking. I was going to Scotland fishing and uh, a bunch of four rods fell off my car into the A74 carriageway just as we got over the border. By the time I'd stopped and got out, a car had stopped behind the rods. It set off and ran over the bundle, and it didn't stop, thank for goodness for them. Apart from two or three bent rings, they continued in demonstrations and fishing for many years later. That's <laughs> <laughs> testament. Yeah. Now, carbon fibre had been on the horizon for some time. And the first issue was that they couldn't make it in longer lengths than a metre. That was sorted and then came the adhesives problem where they could not find one that flexed at the same rate as the carbon. And so the sheets broke up. Like everything else, this is important commercially, so they sorted it out and virtually ended the fibreglass rod production. 
I felt sorry for many anglers who were buying so-called carbon fibre rods with as little as 5% carbon and 95% glass. Some had just a few strands of carbon fibre spiralling around the, the length of the rod. So the rod manufacturers weren't quite as honest as they could have been. Nothing new there? No, no. Fiberglass may well have had its day, but the 484 is still revered. It's an iconic piece of kit, which as I said earlier, I still occasionally see down on the beach paired up with an old 1970s Ambassador 7000 reel. I suppose it's a bit like people giving classic cars the occasional run out. Nostalgia, but in the knowledge that it can still do the business and feel good. Yes, I agree, and still occasionally get correspondence, usually emails about it. It's humbling to find that anglers still enjoy fishing with them. After all, it was designed for fishing, not tournament casting. I enjoyed demonstrating the rod and uh, what it was capable of to groups of anglers who either wanted to learn or didn't believe the hype about it. Regardless of the weather, it never failed to produce a cast of 190 yards at a demo and even did 202 yards at Chelmsford on a freezing wet day. Which was the first cast over 200? I believe it was the first cast in, in any tackle demo in the UK. Uh, I used it in many competitions around the UK and I can't recall how many British and UK records I held but it was quite a number. On a personal note I wanted to have a crack at the International Casting Federation's World Championships and was delighted when the British Casting Association were awarded the running of it in Scarborough in 1973. As it was a chance to win the top titles I decided to modify one of my 484s to cast a specific weight rather than the full range. I cut the tip section a bit shorter, about three inches, and fitted a longer duralium butt section, taking the rod up to about 13 feet. The event was a level line event, and that's no shock leaders, so technique was all important. In practice, I was regularly reaching 190 yards. And I might add, I was using the basic zoom cast. On the day, conditions were bad. It was a very strong left to right crosswind. There was no room to turn the casting court around, so we were stuck with it. My reel, Ambassador 6000, was loaded with 18 pounds breaking strain Maxima line. And I managed to cast a miserable 150 metres, 164 yards. But I had emptied the reel because of the crosswind. Every cast was the same conditions to cast in and my cast was the longest in the professional class so I was delighted with that. The following day was much better conditions for the two ounce multiplayer level line event and I used a 12 foot fast tapered Japanese made rod which was more suitable to casting the smaller weight. My longest effort was a world record breaking 132.82 metres, which is 145 yards plus. And then like a professional footballer at the World Cup when they're hanging the medal down his neck, you retire. <laughs> well, in actual fact, I, I, I didn't retire. I retired from tournament casting, but I still carried on promoting the, uh, the rod. I'd have liked to have continued with the World Championship casting, but... The next venue was South Africa and it was out of my, my pocket and also a one-man business uh, presented lots of problems so I decided that I had achieved what I wanted, a world distance casting record 
so there was not much point in carrying on. I did not mention it to anyone except my closest friend Eric Moore. You mentioned the Abu Ambassador 7000 reel, which also had an interesting tale attached to it. I was asked by Abu GB if I'd like to accompany a group of fishing tackle dealers to the Abu factory in Sweden. The trip was scheduled for September 68, and prior to the trip I'd been talking to Alf Walker. Alf was a London area Abu rep, and he used to come to all my casting demonstrations and do all the spiel while I did the casting. I was talking to him about the Abu 6000 reel being unsuitable for general beach fishing and hopeless for rock fishing. There were all sorts of things against it except its casting ability. He suggested that I put on paper my thoughts and take it with me to Sweden where he would try to get a few minutes with one of the directors. It was still a family firm in those days, unlike today where it's a small part of a huge firm. I not only wrote about the reel I would like to see, but I also did a drawing of it and put on the measurements and other details, rates of retrieve, etc. Uh, thumbing flanges on the spool and uh, eventually with Alf I got to talk to the then Vice President Len Borgstrom about my ideas and he didn't seem very interested, but he did say he would have a look at it. The following year appeared the Ambassador 7000 reel, and guess what? It was exactly as I'd drawn it out. The disappointing thing was that I never even got a thank you letter or acknowledgement from Abu. As you probably know, it has sold in thousands all around the world and is recognised as one of the best reels on the market today. Well, you put the country straight now, haven't you? <laughs> got your point across, so not only yeah, the 484, but the, the Ambassador 7000. Yeah, yeah. As far as retirement's concerned, no, I only retired from tournament casting. Abu asked me to go to Spain to uh, do a demonstration for the Spanish Abu agent had asked. Uh, he was trying to get the local anglers interested in using the 484s. I was coming up against the belief that you could not cast as far as the, the Spanish anglers could cast with their equipment if you were using a short rod and the 484 was classed as a short rod to them and a multiplying reel. He asked if I would go and demonstrate it to the Spanish casting club. I suppose the thinking was that if they could be persuaded that it would take off in sales. I was a bit dubious at first as it was a couple of months since I'd been anywhere to use the outfit and I was not going to go into a competition and did not want to go to Spain for my usual £8 fee. I was assured that it would not be a competition and my expenses would be paid. I did some research and discovered that the locals used 18 to 20 foot bamboo rods, large Mitchell fixed spool reels with specially chromed spools, very fine light breaking strain lines with a shock leader, so I decided to have a try before making my mind up to go and loaded my reel with 300 yards of 8 pound breaking strain and a 45 pound breaking strain shock leader. Went to have a try where I normally practiced. I had three casts and comfortably managed between 205 and 215 yards so I was happy with that. Evidently the Spanish record was 213 metres. So I was in the ballpark and agreed to go. 
I flew to Barcelona where the demo was to take place, met the rep and a local dealer, and the following day went to the field. We arrived at the field to find out it was laid out as a tournament court, and there were about a dozen people in a huddle and with their tackle already made up. I asked the rep what was going on as I was not entering a competition. I was assured that the casting club were going to have a competition later amongst themselves, so I agreed to carry on. None of the casters spoke to me. I'm not sure how many understood what I was saying. Conditions for casting were perfect. The field was about six feet higher than the tide, with a slight breeze coming off the sea and over my right shoulder on a slight crosswind over the court. I said to the rep that I was just going to do a cast so that I could rewind the line tighter onto my reel. I cast concentrating on the technique more than the power and when the weight dropped into the field I realised it had gone a long way. I could see the knot joining the line to the backing and it was visible on the reel. I could not stop them measuring the cast even though it was not a competition but the rep walked out to check that it was alright. 232.6 metres, 254 yards and 1 foot was the result. 19 metres past the Spanish all-time casting record and without trying hard. All were silent, nobody except the rep and the dealer spoke to me. I did two more casts around 220 metres. Asked if anybody had any questions or would they like to have a cast with my outfit. No takers. So I packed up and came home. Nothing more to be said, is there? <laughs> it speaks for itself. Exactly. <coughs> what can you say to that? I was a bit disappointed that uh, they weren't a bit more friendly and a bit, uh, you know, more asking questions about uh, the outfit, but uh, that's, yeah. uh, that's how it was. Point proved. Yeah. So it, that was your last episode on the tournament, well, I said tournament casting field, on the casting field. Um, or was it? No, I actually went to Brazil <laughs> after that. I was asked to go to the uh, Marlin Negro Club, uh, right at the southern end of Brazil, just to attend um, a competition. Not to uh, cast or anything, but just to go. And I thought, well, I said I would go, providing that... Um, they sent me the air tickets and, and what have you, and uh, I got a, a letter back saying that they would do this. I never heard anything at all, so I thought, well, it's all blown over. So the day I was supposed to go, I was uh, sat in a dentist chair having a tooth filled. I heard the phone go, and a few seconds later, the uh, lady from the, the dentist came in and said, Mr. Bagnall, uh, I've just had your partner on the phone. Your tickets for going to Brazil are at Manchester Airport and your flight's up past two. <laughs> this was like 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so I actually, I made it, I actually made it to, I came out of the dentist after they'd finished and uh, dashed home, grabbed the gear together and what have you, and uh, I went round to the shop, had a word with Peter, my partner. And went off to Manchester, rang a pal that lived at Sale. He he said, "Bring come to our house and leave your car. I'll take you to the airport." So that was it. And it wasn't actually casting do, but they asked me if I would like to show them how I cast. 
Uh, I said, well, I can't, I can show you how I cast. I said, but I can't compete with some of these lads that you've got here. I was actually amazed. They had a three meter, yeah, three meter limit on the length of the rods. They were using bamboo type rods. The diameter at the tip would be no less than half an inch. Fixed spool reels with 20 pound running line. And they were casting over 200 yards. It's impressive. It was mind blowing. And two of the chaps that were there were, I mean, I'm not a small bloke, but two of the chaps that were there were six inches taller than me. They were two brothers, they were farmers. And they said, would you come back for a fortnight and teach us how to cast? <laughs> I thought, well, you can cast further than I do. <laughs> so I had to decline because I couldn't do it anyway because I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get the time. So that was really the last demo I did, I think. You don't miss the casting? Well, I wouldn't say that I don't miss it. I did get tempted at one time. I, uh, I heard there was a competition down at um, Pilling, which is, uh, what, six miles away, is it seven miles, something like that. And uh, I went down for a look and uh, I was quite surprised that so many people recognised who I was after all this time. There were one or two people there that I knew well. Uh, Terry Carroll was there. Fortunately, he's passed away since then, but uh, he had the Ziplex company that made uh, Ziplex rod blanks and, and fishing rods. And he actually sent me a a 13-foot rod that he'd built on the lines of the 484 so that I could have a go again, but I never got... <laughs> I never... well, I never I never had the courage to go and try it. I thought, uh, no, after I watched one bloke cast 303 yards, I thought, they're not... <laughs> End of story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mind you, it was built like a brick garage. And... <laughs> it wasn't that, that Danny Moss. I can't remember. Okay, the Belgian bloke. Oh no, he's an English bloke. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did later find out that they were using much finer lines than I had to. You know, that I could use when I was tournament casting, and uh, they were really on the lines of the things that I did in uh, Barcelona. So if I had turned my mind to it and gone back and had a go, I don't think I would have disgraced myself using that sort of gear, you know. But uh, no, I've been down again and watched them for a while and taken some pictures and that sort of thing, but they've never managed to tempt me to pick a rod up and have a go. <laughs> it keeps that mystique there if you don't do it, if you just <laughs> rely on what you did do. And uh... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I never actually took casting seriously, that's the thing. My casting was just done for fishing. Um, the only time that I seriously practised casting, this tournament casting, was for the World Championships at Scarborough. And I spent uh, every evening for three or four weeks <coughs> down on the practice field and, uh, well, the results showed it was worth it. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but for the others, it, it was just, I just went, you know. Just turned up and thrashed them. <laughs> it was just a natural thing, a natural style, so I'd been using it for a lot of years, you know, from uh, the days of me 
solid glass beach casting. Well, it wasn't a beach cast, it was only eight foot, but uh, you got used for beach casting. And now, finally, you really have put the casting well and truly behind you. But casting, be it on the field or on the beach, should not forget the huge historical step forward your pioneering work with Abu took things, and for that, casters should always be grateful. I'm grateful too for this opportunity to meet and talk with a true icon of the sea angling scene. So an enormous thank you to Peter Bagnall for taking the time to reminisce with us all here.